You're listening to Version Control, Pounding Grain's digital news podcast. Dave Gerlami has quite the eclectic background, from creating an interactive art gallery to helping launch one of the biggest digital conferences in the world. Dave is constantly involved in shaping the digital landscape. Dave is currently a senior business advisor where he helps guide small and medium businesses in sales and marketing. Version Control presents The Hot Seat, featuring Dave Girolami. Why don't we start with the story behind Pixel Gallery? I was a account supervisor at TVWA in 19... 19- 1999. But when I got in there, uh, I, I sort of met all of these amazing creative people that uh, were doing such fantastical things with, you know, what is now Photoshop and Illustrator and things like that. But what enamored me was they did things for work, sitting in front of those screens, very much like I walked into your shop today and saw people doing the same thing. But at that time, you know, thinking, think, think about what how different that was mm-hmm. then compared to how normal it is now in terms of the the craft of creative you know design um and so i was like wow you know these people are not only just sort of you know naturally gifted in terms of their ability to be creative think creatively and apply their creative thought to some medium but different than tra- traditional mediums it was like they also had to learn what was essentially brand new in terms of technology and systems and platforms to be able to make those creative ideas come to life. And there was a big learning curve and a steep curve because there weren't the structured school programs and all those things that you could go through to systematically learn it, mm-hmm. apply it, get a job, all that kind of stuff. It was like people were playing with Photoshop, playing with Illustrator, playing with Flash when, you know, and, and the added notion of like, wow, not only is it sort of static creative outputs, but it's interactive, immersive creative outputs that takes another level of imagination to be able to then program that, mm-hmm. make it look seamless, beautiful, all these things. I was blown away by that. <laughs> blown away by that. And still blown an, away by that. You're still blown away by yeah. that every day. And so when I was looking uh, at what these people did after hours, playing, learning, I thought to me, and at the time I was in a relationship that was uh, with an artist. And, and so I was really, you know, uh, paying a lot of attention to art, artistry, yeah. the, the craft of it and the importance of it. Um, and so looking at these people, I thought, is anybody really looking at, you know, this as a true art form, as an emerging art form? I suspect it's as much, but I didn't have the arts background to know where, you know, art was evolving. Right. So I did my own sort of online research, Googling away, <laughs> finding that there were art galleries and art organizations and all that's all these types that were really starting to take hold and want to celebrate and 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 look at this as a as an established art form, but it wasn't really mainstream yet. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to do was establish locally the opportunity to just showcase 
people's creativity in this realm. And the only way that I could position it differently was to say, let's have one key mandate that differentiates this arts support organization from any other was that any output had to have some form of computational augmentation. Even photography was a gray area because yeah. it was like you could take a photograph, but now you could take it, manipulate it and do something more to it. Well, I think when I started sitting down writing my vision for that, I sort of pinged it off a few people. They thought it was interesting. I had friends and roommates at the time who were architects. Mm. Um, so they were like, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, what's really interesting is this whole sort of uh, immersive, interactive, physical space thing that was happening, right? So artists, designers, technologists, and architects were all sort of looking at, well, how do you augment a space to be virtual and real at the same time? And, yeah. and what is that all about? That was all brand new sort of, you know, cutting edge stuff. What I ended up doing was I, I knew I needed a platform. I knew I needed a lot of people to see it. I think advertising and branding was starting to seep into how I figured out how you could start to, you know, develop an entity and get it known and, and build groundswell around it. And that was when I, through various connections, managed to get an opportunity to run the first exhibition in the um, Alan Lambert Galleria area. Was it a bunch of screens that you had set up and it was just like, what were some of the exhibits or, or pieces that you were showing? So there was a whole myriad of it. There was um, uh, animation based um, pieces which were on screens. Mm -hmm. There were printed canvases that were printouts from uh, Photoshop driven, you know, um, prints, outputs. Mm -hmm. There was, and then the, I guess the marquee one was uh, at the time, and I knew I kind of needed a headliner per se. And uh, I came across, uh, I don't know if you guys know who John Maida is, and he was at the time the, uh, director of aesthetics and computation lab at MIT, but he happened to also do code art. So he would, you know, in his spare time, write a bunch of code, that output would then be created as a, almost what would be considered algorithmic art now. Um, and uh, he would capture it somehow and then print it on something. And he had his work in like major New York galleries. And so I thought, Okay, well, if he's getting that kind of traction, I'm just going to give him a shout and see what he thinks of this idea. And I did. I got a hold of him, and he loved it. And he said, look, Dave, you can take my art from this art gallery or, or sort of, you know, borrow it, mm -hmm. put it in your exhibition, send it back, go for it. And I didn't know that. I didn't realize how many people really understood who he was. So a lot of people came out to see his work. Nice. And that kind of coupled with the fact that I wanted to curate something, and it wasn't just me, and I'll, I'll add that, it, it was a group of us um, that curated this and, uh, and sourced out as many sort of local artists doing different things as we could. It's crazy to think now that like a world without Instagram, because like you were saying, like to know who John was was almost like a fluke to you to just to kind of like send him up if you were to look him up now like i just looked him up really quickly i don't know who he is but like yeah he's world famous like. yeah 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 absolutely you know i think early on we all gravitated towards the same notion that 
meaningful experiences is really what interactive is all about. Yeah. And if you're going to put it out there to the masses and to the people, the most important thing is to make it relevant and valuable in some way, shape or form. And that's been the guiding light principle to me. Mm-hmm. Every time we look at, you know, brands and companies saying, okay, well, what's going to work? Yeah. And is this good? And, you know, well, let's think about it from who's using it. Yeah. Is it, is it useful? Is it helpful? I think that the whole idea of like, is something meaningful is, and sometimes it's, it's, we forget that sometimes. I think it's, we do get caught in that spiral of, is it good? Is it impressive? Is anybody going to notice this? When, you know, in reality, it's exactly what you're saying is like, does this mean something to somebody? Because if it does, then you're, then that's the job. Yeah. And I don't think that has ever changed since the very beginning. So I think it's cool that you kind of adopted that into Pixel Gallery and, and that kind of grew from there. Did that ethos come from the marketing background or is that something that you developed with Pixel Gallery? I think it, the the ethos came from the notion that and I don't know where it came from you know uh, in a in a in a conscious sense but I kind of during the 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 era I guess of things changing from analog to digital and there was a, sh- a major shift at at around that time frame where you know I just felt I think it was easy to pick out because it was so new and there wasn't so much of it what you really gravitated towards mm-hmm. just viscerally and what just was noise to you yeah so I think that naturally, if you were really interested in it, it was easy to curate a good experience. And that's why I do not tout myself as a, uh, an art curator. I just, at that moment in time, just seemed to be able to understand. That's so interesting. Do you, do you think that because the space is far more cluttered now that it's more difficult to see what's authentic? In a short answer, yes. Right. I think so. I think it's harder to weigh because... I also think that there's a lot of smart people with particular agendas that are trying to sell certain things that do that sell job very well, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually really good. That's actually one of the conversations that we have a lot within the walls of this place too, is like, is it art for art or art for marketing? Is, uh-huh. Does that matter sometimes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's, and, a, that's a good debate. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I think... For a lot of people, it comes down, it's, it's just, it's, it's the feel of it, which is the, such a cop-out answer for stuff like that. But exactly what you're saying, it's that sort of visceral connection to something that you either have immediately or you develop um, that becomes that connection of, is this meaningful or not to me? And then being able to articulate why it is. And that's a constant problem that we're trying to solve here in terms of like, you know, whether it's for a client or whether it's like, we want to just try something interesting um, as creatives to do something different and to, to try to connect with people in, in, in weird, weird ways. Um, which again, kind of leads me to like this, the pixel gallery, like you were saying, kind of moved in tandem to flash in the can. And, and then at some point there was a connection. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? In a very practical sense as flash in the cam was gaining, um, you know, notoriety and, and visibility as a local, uh, design technology conference that, you know, talk about nerds and geeks. I mean, you know, the impetus was that really in the beginning, it was all those types that were just getting together and it was more of a community. So 
Flash in the Can as a conference was started by Sean, but he started the first Flash, Adobe Flash user group wow. in Toronto. <laughs> and that's how he grew a, an event off of, out of, from that. Yeah. Uh, those Adobe Flash user groups popped up, ended up popping up. I mean, this was a, this was a community I knew little about. Um, they were more of the developer community than, than its, the sort its, of arts community. But I think that's what's the cool part about uh, Flash as a piece of technology way back when is it was a way for uh, code nerds to be articulate in the art space. Like oh, it, to make things move the way that things like Shockwave could do was mm -hmm. such an amazing thing even not just as a user but as like if you were to create something in that space it was just a whole new type of canvas so i totally understand how like smaller underground groups of those can kind of resonate in, in a city like toronto as well as like why it makes sense for something like pixel gallery to exist in that time so like the late 90s early 2000s is really kind of when that tipping point happened and that was the beauty of it was that now it exposed me to sort of I was looking at it more from the aesthetics, creators, artists, and now I was really being introduced or learning about the whole sort of coder developer side of that equation. And uh, it was, it became more fascinating. So flat, flash forward to uh, the notion that um, I was managing to sell sponsorships for the, to um, support the art exhibitions that I was having. So there was two ways to get funds to hold an art exhibition. Go get a grant, mm. but those grants were never enough. <laughs> to them, it was like, well, you're putting on an AV show. And anyway, so there was a lot of conversation. I actually ended up going to meet with the head of the Canada Council of the Arts in Ottawa to try to explain the deficiency in the funding model they had in place for digital arts and all this kind of stuff. But uh, I managed to get uh, this fun interactive um, piece into one of the first flash in the can events because mm -hmm. they had these exhibitor areas for different you know software companies yep. and things like that and so Sean was very for you know future forward and he was like yeah I think you know interactive experiences art things like that should be infused in that in that exhibitor experience outside of the talks and so he let me just do put on one of these just for exposure sake. Like I was like, mm -hmm. he, he's like, I won't charge you for the space and you know, there's no money exchange here. Just do it. I'll support, you know, the, the notion it was a, it was a good sort of, you know, um, relationship in terms of the same mindsets and visions and, and, and goals. But then we got to talking and he was like, I want to expand flash in the cab from a Toronto event. Um, and it was becoming quite successful getting, mm. you know, a few hundred people out every year. And, uh, he had his ups and downs, very difficult thing. I'm super happy that they're established the way they are now, but right at that cusp, he was like, I want to grow it outside of Toronto. The one skill set I had to help him was getting companies to pay for sponsorships for this type of genre of, yeah. of conversation. So whether that be talks, exhibits, whatever. So he was like, here, you know, let's try it out. And um, I worked with them, I think, for three or four years uh, with Sean and group. And um, my sole job was really to develop sponsorship opportunities to augment the, the ticket sales mm -hmm. to make these events happen. But the fun was that we were trying to expand it 
outside of Toronto, which yeah. meant, I guess my favorite thing was that, you know, their FITC Amsterdam is 10 years old now. Wow. And I sort of went there net new, only guy walking into Amsterdam, walking up to all the agencies, the creative shops saying, hey, there's this event in Toronto <laughs> and we'd really like to hold it here. And we really need the support of the design, you know, and, and uh, creative sort of, you know, um, community. Uh, and of course, I don't know if you, I mean, the Dutch Amsterdam, it's a, it's a really strong creative hub. I mean, oh, Sean yeah, knew that. Yeah. So he was like, yeah, we, we need to go there. And that for me was probably the most exciting um, one for me to help sort of nurture to be established. Yeah, it really all kind of came from this notion where you walked into an agency and saw a bunch of people really passionate doing things that they loved. Like, where does it come from for you? So I guess um, creative sort of output, if you will. So I thought that I was going to be a journalist. I was going to follow my father's footsteps because he was a broadcaster. I went to Humber College for radio. Seemed like the fastest way to getting a job. I was planning to go to Ryerson <laughs> afterwards. The, the excitement <laughs> in your voice is, yeah. is really probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was just recanting how I, I would have done it quite differently. Uh, but, you know, it, it's brought me to where all the things that I've done and, and, and where I am today. That kind of meandered my way into that shift between uh, everything going analog to digital. I had access to an audio recording booth because I worked for a syndicated radio production company as an intern. Okay. So at night, we could go in there oh. and, and futz around with everything. <laughs> and including, I was one of the only kids to come out of Humber that was first taught Pro Tools. And then I had a friend of mine who, who did a lot of, um, at the time, he was learning uh, Macromedia Director, wow. which was, uh, um, uh, I guess, a, a framework for creating interactive experiences on CD-ROMs. Yeah. Um, so like the menus even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so everything. So we had a ton of fun with like um, doing some creative stuff with that. He went and shot some stuff and then you know, did all of the Photoshop work and the programming of it. And I, and I did all of these voiceover audio things, oh, nice. even the menus and everything. And then we found our way to working for a company that um, produced uh, very intricate presentations for companies that were trying to pitch themselves. Okay. So that's what started this, where we made, made these crazy interactive CD-ROMs for clients like the Royal Bank and Nestle wow. and, and commissioned by this company. And um, that started the foray into sort of, you know, us starting this little two-man shop, uh, which we had an office at 96 Spadina, uh, which is funny because I think it was like 400 bucks a month for this, <laughs> oh, this the loft old, space. The old days. Oh, ridiculous. <laughs> I don't even know what it would cost now. Um, and we did that for a couple of years. And then uh, we, when the client ran out and we had no plan to build a business around it we were just doing yeah um we went off and did some separate things before we got back together and did pixel together but um yeah i think for me i started to really become enamored with the whole interactive creative experience from creation all the way to output and all mm. of the interesting cool ideas and and methodologies for creating that and I found it, too, to be so, you know, open-ended creative, but so sort of engineering scientific. Like, you had to have a, a, a mind to be able to do both. Like, to program, 
and to visualize yep. uh, a beautiful creative output uh, in any way, like to put those two together, it's pretty fascinating and, and takes a lot of talent to, in my mind. And I think like technology has kind of evolved with that to allow people to start to think in those particular ways now. Whereas before it was like, it's a painting, it's a film, it's a very sort of like one-sided uh, action oriented output where it's a, you know, it comes out and it's like a photo or a movie or something like that. But now it can be anything. It can, there's like so many different ways creativity can go in terms of expression and what we can do with it, which kind of leads me to like my next, like, for into the next chapter of Dave. I don't know if we're going chronologically, but you you ended up working with Tyler to help businesses kind of take these elements of what they're trying to do from an idea and, and fuse it together with an element of creative to kind of build something out of it. Pound and Grain's current managing director, Tyler Lockyer, we're talking about. Right? <laughs> yes. That's the guy. That's the one. Yes, okay. yes. I met Tyler when he worked for an ad agency that I, or a digital shop that I worked for in 2010. And that's where we first sort of connected. I think we just, he was a, a, a project manager uh, and I was an account guy and, and we kind of just saw eye to eye on, on things in, in sort of, you know, casual conversations um, after work, drinks, you know, how that goes. Oh, yeah. At, at some point, though, I kind of realized that there is a difference and it's a, a responsibility difference between creating work that is for you know, exploring creative output and, and being very open-ended. And then there's creative work that has to perform a business need. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I started to think more <laughs> responsibly, if you will, around what that meant, especially because I was more, you know, working on the account side of things. Mm-hmm. I was always looking at, you know, well, how do we make sure that companies are getting the most you know, return on what they're paying for Mm -hmm. and how is this performing? And I think what's the, the science of measuring the effectiveness of creativity has been fascinating and it has been growing exponentially Mm -hmm. in, you know, what I'll call a short while. But I think the, the, the notion is that really I started to, and when I met Tyler and we started, um, fire, it was to say, okay, every time we hear a client's business objectives, how do we relate that, the, the opportunity to create, whether it be a website or a, a marketing strategy or campaign, and those, those subsequent outputs, everything's got to ladder up to performing in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And that's early, early on, too, I, I, I started thinking to myself, a big difference in the day versus, you know, after work of a, of a creative person or a creative director in a shop is that, you know, they want to push boundaries and want to do things out of the box. And it's important to, to push those boundaries. But if you really want to make art, make art separate and don't try to create art for art's sake when commerce is in play it's a tricky balance i can tell you definitely from experience uh just like yeah like what is where where do you draw that line and like the one thing that i kind of talk to my guys about a lot is like art you can be precious about marketing is not for you it's actually for a particular purpose so like a lot of the times, like you kind of mentioned, like as you grew up or, or matured, but I think in, in some ways, 
the fact that you had such an appreciation for the arts, for sort of the creative process has really kind of aided you in understanding how to get really good work and what really good work and measurable work is. Um, so in terms of that, I mean, again, this is a weird left turn, but you guys then became creators yourself and started making beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was interesting because while we were doing fire, we were saying, well, to, to what end are we doing right. this? Um, not to say that what we were doing was not satisfying, but it also started to seed in, say, can you really put your money where your mouth is in terms of the advice you give? Mm-hmm. So part of that was to say, and we explored lots of different, you know, side hustles or how can we diversify what we're doing to do some other things. And in the beginning, it was like, well, how can we create a, a more scientific approach to integrating marketing and sales and started looking at, you know, how can we work with um, platform technologists to create a more you know, integrated platform into your, into your, you know, marketing system to measure and to provide, um, uh, uh, insights that would make them work better and perform better. Well, guess who's doing that? Everyone, Facebook, Google, (laughs) it's like, how are we, how are we going to develop a new thing and put it out in the market and, and own that? So we started to say, well, what else about business do we want to explore? And really, Round the table, there was Tyler, myself, one of our other partners, John, and one of our sort of contract workers, Mark. And we started chit-chatting, and Mark was doing homebrewing. Tyler had a, a real sort of passion for sort of understanding the, the craft brew industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just by proxy of loving beer, became <laughs> more sort of, you know, enamored with the difference between, well, what is this craft brew phenomenon? What is that? Anyway, then we found out that the space we were in was licensable huh. to, as, a, as a manufacturing entity rather easily. And one of the hardest things about getting a brewery up and running is all of the, the sort of regulations and licensing and yeah. all this stuff. So we wanted to go through that process. And quite frankly, from a business perspective, it's an amazing lucrative business if you can get into it. And it's and it has that aura of creativity, craft, mm-hmm. all that stuff, which I think basically is what seeded into me. I was like, yeah, I can get behind this. Yeah. Because it's cool. Yeah. It's going to make money. And it's scrappy and it's small and it's something we can, I think we can do while we focus on our other business. It's another sort of side business and everyone around the table is super interested in it. Yeah. So why not go for it? And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we went uh, as far down that path as we could afford to go until we realized <laughs> that uh, you really got to Andy up some serious investment. And uh, we had to all ask ourselves if that was a path we were willing to go down, wasn't the right timing, mm-hmm. but we parlayed it into, I think where we're all satisfied with, we helped, you know, another organization that was looking for what we had built to augment what they had done mm-hmm. and move it forward. So that's where we left off. But I think it's cool. I mean, you guys started it as like, let's, let's, let's build our own case study. Yeah. Right? And it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah. you, you, since then have kind of parlayed that into your current position. So can you just tell Nick and I a little bit about what you do now? Sure. Yeah. So now, um, you know, I work directly with entrepreneurs of all sort of 
industry sectors um, and scales, but I'll say uh, the SMB market, so small and medium-sized businesses, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a scale. I mean, how you you quantify that is typically, you know, I'm not going to deal with companies with revenues of over $100 million, that's for sure. That gets... Uh, uh, larger, more sophisticated, and and so the frameworks and the things, the advice we give, and um, really, it doesn't match that. Mm-hmm. Um, but working with entrepreneurs to help them wade through, at the end of the day, they often come with a problem that is, or they think that what they need to do is solve uh, a marketing problem or a mm-hmm. sales problem, but they're trying to grow their business at the end of the day, so. We, we just sort of, I, uh, I take a step back to say, well, what are your growth goals? Mm-hmm. What are you looking to achieve? Well, I want to take my company from two to five million. Okay. Or from five to 20 million. Okay. How, how do you see that happening? Well, I think I'm just going to have to generate more leads. <laughs> well, that's a given. Yeah. <laughs> but within that, um, what do you think is going to, you know, where are you going to get those leads from? How are you going to manage those leads? How are you going to generate visibility and awareness? And they do have, you know, informed or semi-informed answers to all of that. But I do find that because of all of the outward um, sort of advice that seems to be found readily and easily, it always comes down to tactical sort of mindsets. It's like, well, you know, and I hate to generalize, but in a lot of senses, it's like, well, you know, I think that uh, Instagram is a really good platform for me to start to, you know, create, generate visibility for mm-hmm. my company. And uh, I think it fits well with, with our sort of company in terms of the, the, the audience that we're, uh, that we're trying to go after. And, but the, you know, part of that, as you well know, is that maybe a great effective tactic amongst another number of other ones but at the end of the day do you understand do you have the right infrastructure in place to manage that do you understand mm-hmm. the costs associated with that is that the right um tactic and is it it's probably probably just part of your channel mix and all of these things that you know i try to wipe away uh, and push away all of the vernacular and all of the sort of you know buzzwords uh, buzzwords yeah. and say you're trying to grow let's work work down from there Mm -hmm. and what what does it take in terms of company readiness your infrastructure your understanding and you know let's break it down from there uh with all of of creating a um a a marketing strategy or a sales strategy or a brand strategy that ultimately attaches itself to a path of meeting that revenue goal Mm -hmm. so that's where things have really shifted with me over the course of my career in business now it's about helping entrepreneurs make sure that they're comfortable and they see a clear path between what they're doing and how that actually ladders up to their real financial growth goals mm-hmm. um because otherwise why are you doing it right so you, you touched a little bit on like sort of this entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit um but I mean, you're, you're kind of working with these small to medium businesses that you're talking about. Is part of your goal to help them get to that next level? Or are you, is it more just kind of like they come in and you help identify the problem um, and then help come up with a plan to solve that problem with them? Well, it's, it's, it's ultimately you want to help them grow hmm. to that goal. But 
sales and marketing as a function of business can only do so much. Right. There are going to be other aspects of, of their business that they need to touch on, whether that's operations or, or HR management or right. financial management and things like that. I only work within the practice space of, uh, you know, sales and marketing or, or what we call top line growth. Mm -hmm. So if there's a top line growth need an opportunity to help an organization, um, create the right infrastructure and the right strategies to, to direct or generate more awareness and visibility, direct leads through that funnel, manage that those leads properly, create good lead opportunities. And through that, there's going to be a whole lot of creative execution. Mm -hmm. So they also need to understand well, who are the myriad of players that provide those services? Who do I use? When do I use them? I saw an amazing Forrester report back in 2014 that, uh, or I think it was written in 2010. Anyways, I was sitting in a boardroom and I won't name company names or anything, but I, it was a, a very large tier one brand and the CMO had brought all of the heads of their agencies in a room and basically said, you know, there's like 10 different agencies that service this company. I really don't understand who, who does what most effectively because everyone's pitching that they can do the same thing. You've got mm -hmm. a media agency that's saying they do social. You've got a creative agency that says they do websites. They, and, and at that time, he, he was very confused. So he actually put the brief out to everybody in that room and said, I need uh, you know, a TV ad campaign. So you guys can all pitch on that. I need wow. a social strategy campaign. You guys can all pitch on that. And, and he was really trying. And at that time I saw this study and it was about Forrester was saying, there's so much complexity in terms of marketing and so many players in the market space. How is a, a marketing head supposed to understand how to orchestrate their partnerships mm -hmm. effectively? And it was called uh, agency orchestration models. And I thought to myself then, you know, if these, these tier one brands are, are sort of trying to wade through this, eventually, and it's coming true, I mean, you know, when, when do you go straight to a, a social media agency versus mm -hmm. a web shop? I mean, entrepreneurs who are starting businesses focusing on their business, they don't really know the difference between all of that. If you're a marketer and you're working for uh, a brand and your job is to understand who to go to for what, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But when you're creating widget A out on the market and, and, and then you've got your task with, you know, hiring and vetting different sort of creative providers or marketing, you know, strategy providers, how do you really know how to wade through that? So that's so, awesome that you're helping yeah. a lot of these companies kind of wade through all that and mm -hmm. add some clarity to it. Mm -hmm. So in your mind, like what does success look like for them? Is it to, to understand that or just to get some clarity on that? Well, it's, it's uh, understanding it, getting clarity, but it's putting in a, uh, an understandable um, integrated strategy nice. and laying it in front of them and then having them understand, okay, there's executables from this strategy. Who's going to do what? Mm -hmm. What's it, what, what is the budget against those? Um, what should good look like yep. when they do get executed? But more so, how are you going to measure that they're performing and they're they're providing those returns against that that revenue growth goal. So you want to go from two to five million. So everything you're spending on 
uh, how is that returning? So, you know, then you get into all of that terminology, like yeah. return on ad spend and <laughs> you're going through lifetime value of a customer and cost per customer acquisition. And you're doing all of that sort of, you know, um, all of those ratio scenarios with them to come up with those budgets to then inform what you're going to do and then what it should be doing for your business. That's so awesome. it's we're, like you're giving kind of, like personalized masterclasses for, for people. And yeah. I mean, it's definitely not just me. I have a whole team of people that I work with uh, yeah. around and then we've got sort of subject matter experts in all of those various areas. But I think I, I kind of laddering it back to whether you call it a business advisor, a consultant, um, I don't know, maybe I'll call it a curator yeah. because <laughs> yeah. it's just about trying to, to piece together what's going to work for somebody's goals. And I, I don't look at it any differently than when I was trying to articulate, hey, if you give Pixel Gallery $5,000 to support this art exhibition, what are you going to get out of it? Yeah. What's its value to you being there? And whether it's indirect or direct sort of, you know, uh, revenue. Well, in sponsorship, it's probably not likely, but you are buying brand awareness and how you do that effectively in the context of being in the front of the right audience and, you know, doing the right thing in front of the right audience. Um, that's what's going to make this investment successful. That's awesome that it really does kind of go all the way back to your first endeavor into sort of melding together the, the idea of supporting creatives and, in, in uh, in a space like that. And it's, it still kind of ladders back up to exactly what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, I just sort of figured that out right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Version Control, the hot seat featuring Dave Girolami. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on iTunes.